0: Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. The French Open is complete. We have two new major champions. It is June 12th, Monday, right after the French Open is finally concluded. The grass court season is underway, and we have a lot to talk about this week. I am Jeff Stackman, your host from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl vialek Hi, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Let us jump right into Rafael Nadal, the king of clay, owner of 10 Roland Garros titles, in addition to 10 Monte Carlo titles, 10 Barcelona titles, and just about every clay court record there is. Um, Carl, what can we say about this beyond beyond wow? I mean, he, he blew away the competition all week long. He, he beat the guy who last beat him on clay in Dominic Team. Um it, Carl, do you think he's back to his peak level on clay right now?
1: I do. I hesitate to say for sure because he didn't face Andy Murray, which could have been a joke, could have been a punchline a few years ago, Andy Murray on clay. But at this tournament and throughout the clay season the last two years, he was one of the three best players on clay. And Rafa only got Djokovic once in Madrid, and Djokovic clearly isn't as peak now, but has often managed to peak against Rafa in the last few years. And Rafa also didn't get Federer, which probably continues to be a joke on clay just because Rafa has dominated their head-to-head. But then again, Federer's won their last four matches, which were all on hard courts. So... I'm starting with all those caveats just to say they're not really big caveats. Probably Dominic Team is the second best player on clay right now. Stan Bavrinka might be one of the top three or four. And Rafa just rolled right through them in the semis in the final. And in both matches just never seemed uncomfortable. I mean, he seemed uncomfortable at times that he dropped a game because he was playing well enough that he didn't really need to at any point. It was was the, the classic just absolutely unsolvable dilemma of facing Rafa clay where even where when you're ahead in the point you don't really feel like it because you feel like either you have to hit with extremely low margin and a lot of pace near the line low over the net and therefore have a good chance of missing the shot or he will neutralize the rally and once he's neutralized it he's in control and Stan just never seemed like he felt like he had a good idea of how to win a game, let alone a set, let alone three sets. And you just don't see that very often between a between two players in a final where the loser has three slam titles in the last three years and still just looks flummoxed. What, what did you think?
0: Well, I I was shocked at how dominant he was. Like, we, we've talked about this quite a bit the last three weeks, or the last several weeks, and obviously Nadal was the big favorite coming in. We wouldn't have picked anyone ahead of Nadal, obviously, to, to win this, or to win a head-to-head. Even Dominic Team, who did manage to, to win the match against Rafa a few weeks ago. But I didn't expect anything of this magnitude. The fact that he came in and played not the not the toughest French Open draw he's ever faced, but a decent draw most of the way, especially in those last two matches, and just went through him like a buzzsaw. I mean, bagel Dominic Thiem in their third set, gave up only six games to Vavrinka. I mean, that's just unbelievable. It, it's, it it really puts a cap on all these other records he set that he did so so definitively. And as we've seen, like unless someone's playing at their absolute peak, like the one magical day for Robin Soderling or Djokovic at what might turn out to be his career peak level, it, it's difficult to even conceive of a player who can beat Rafa in best of five on clay. And the big question from where we stand right now is, how long can this go on? And I think we talked about this a few weeks ago. We were speculating when the big four would finally be out of the picture uh, in, in terms of chances for the next generation. And I, I believe I said that I thought Nadal would be the first one to go because he's had so many injury problems. Uh, his, his game is so physical. We've seen him miss slams on multiple occasions before because of the injuries. We've seen him withdraw from Roland Garros. And but now, if he now that he's back, what does that mean for 2018, 2019, beyond? If all he did was play the clay season, it, it's still tough to imagine anybody two or three years down the road beating him. I mean, what do you think, Carl? How many more French Opens do you think he has in him? It's,
1: it's so dangerous to make a prediction because you just said that you had imagined he would be the first to go not only do I think almost everyone agreed with you, but I think most people thought it already happened. And this, I include Nadal fans in this. I have friends who are Nadal fans and maybe they're not the most analytically minded, but they do follow him with incredible intensity. And they were saying things like, oh, it's just nice to see him still winning matches. And it's nice to see him make the fourth round at the US Open. And, you know, we had such a, he had such a good run and I just want him to be happy and get into retirement healthy. And, you know, I think there's this, There's several factors. One is just quick reaction, like everyone needs to have a take. Some of it is that the big four were so incredibly consistently dominant, not just regularly contending, but regularly being in the semis at every major, that a slight drop-off from that felt like a bigger one. Part of it is that during that, I don't know if we can call it the middle period of Rafa's career, because we don't know when Rafa's career will end, but during maybe the 2007 or so through 2013 he was challenging on every surface regularly. And so when he started dropping off on grass and then dropping off also on hard courts, or at least being more inconsistent on them, it felt like, oh, that must mean also that on clay he's dropping off. And then there was that just route at the hands of Djokovic in 2015 at the French Open and then withdrawing last year when it looked like he had a good chance. So there, there there were quick takes, and then there was more evidence over a longer period that he already had won his last major. So you don't want to course correct too much and say, okay, now that he's won ten French opens, he's gonna win fifteen or twelve. You know, even twelve is a risky prediction with a guy who turned thirty one during the tournament. But hell, he's thirty one and Federer I didn't think was gonna win another major and now he's one of the favorites for Wimbledon having won the Australian Open. So I, I think at the least, we can say it now looks at least as likely that Djokovic will fall off, and maybe Murray, even though Murray did make the semis here, uh, than Rafa, just based on not just Rafa winning the French Open and dominating it, but really dominating the whole clay season. I, I agree with you that I don't think anyone would have expected the extent to which he dominated the French Open, but he had, other than his loss to Dominic Team in Rome, he swept the clay season. And he lost almost no sets in the clay season outside of that loss. I know he had the one set he dropped early in the season to Kyle Edmond, but not many others so yeah i mean you the the chance of just a major injury derailing him completely will keep going up, and it'll certainly stay high if he keeps playing a full schedule and he played a lot of hardcore matches this year already but I'm I'm not going to count him out from contending in the 2020 French Open at this point. Why not? He'll be younger then than Federer was this year when he won the Australian.
0: Yeah, and aside from Dominic Team, it's it's tough to see the crop of young players throwing up anybody who will be able to beat him in 2020. Uh, and I think to to emphasize some of your points, the Big Four has really been a, a case study in how long term prediction is. Difficult, maybe even dangerous. So if you you think of any point in the last three or four years, if you tried to project the career paths of the Big Four, you would have gotten so many things wrong, especially about this moment in time, midway through 2017. It wasn't that long ago that people were talking about Djokovic winning every slam for as far as the eye could see, with Murray being the one guy who could challenge him. I mean, at the end of this year, or this past year, Murray was number one, he was starting to, to to get that sort of dominance. Um, Federer was gone. Rafa was hurt, as you point out. He was he was basically out of the picture. And then, almost without warning, the the script just got clipped on its head. And it's it, it, it's interesting how it illustrates both regression to the mean in the in the sense of of Djokovic and Murray coming back to earth, but also something in the opposite direction. In that something that we've talked about before, I don't think on the podcast is that. When you have players who have been great in the past, it's it's very difficult ever to count them out. And I think that's something that analytics doesn't do that well, but casual fans do well. So if you see somebody like, I don't know, Leighton Hewitt in the last three years of his career, um, when he's no longer ranked that high, but you're still thinking, hey, this is Leighton Hewitt. He's going to fight to the last ball. He's a great player. He could beat anybody on a good day. Um, it's tough to balance that intuition with the fact that Leighton Hewitt might be ranked number twenty-three at that point, um, and then now we have Federer coming back, starting the year ranked quite a bit lower. But we still know it is the God Roger Federer or the God Rafael Nadal on clay, whether he's ranked number one or number five or something further down. And maybe we'll get some more data data points from this year for players like that with past greatness that they can they at least have a chance of recovering. Um, but the more common scenario, I think, looking back through the history of tennis, is what we're seeing now with Djokovic and Murray that. Guys, once they turn 29, 30, 31, the odds are against them continuing to be as good as they are. And it's tough to pinpoint while it's happening what's going to bring them down, when they're going to fall from their perch. But in general, it's safer to bet that it will happen than bet that someone like Djokovic is going to stay number one forever. Which, of course, is a super easy thing to say right now. But I hope I'll have the presence of mind to say it when the next player who comes along and dominates for a couple of years. Uh, is at that point where people expect him to dominate forever when you know, of course, the end could be starting right now. It could be underway already.
1: All right, so a few thoughts, and, and those are great points. First of all, I think we need to come up with an alternative term to regression to the mean for what Federer and Nadal have done in 2017. And my poor first bid is progression to the max, that they, they had regressed from their max, but they could recapture that, and I don't think progression is really the opposite word I'm looking for from regression, but uh, that's what it felt like. People have asked this year, are Federer and Nadal as good as they've ever been? And on the one hand, you look at the stats and say, hell, they might be better. On the other hand, you think logically, this is not possible. (laughs) These are guys who are so far off their peak so recently and are so far past the peak age for most players, how could this be? Uh... But I I think that also relates to something else you pointed out, which is it's weird how hard it is to predict the late career progressions of the all-time greats. And it's weird because you would think we have so much information about them. We know so much about Roger Federer and tennis. We, you know, we talked in a recent episode about how you often don't have much information about a head-to-head. We have information about so many head-to-heads for Federer on so many surfaces and how he does at different events and How he does when he transitions from clay to grass and and same for nadal i mean not quite as many because he's four years younger or almost five years younger but we still have a ton of data and yet it feels that there's so much variance because either they stay healthy and actually get smarter about managing their schedule and managing their training and everything else or it can all come crashing down either because of the greater chance of injury or loss of endurance, or perhaps in Djokovic's case, just loss of motivation after after dominating. One thing that's occurred to me with Djokovic, by the way, is he's, he can look at these two guys and say, not only can I come back, but man, what a... What a redemptive, beloved storyline it is to do it. Maybe I've really set myself up to have just like a, a wonderful experience of coming back. Maybe that'll be his motivation. He can look at Federer at all and say, even if this slump—it's now a year without a major, which for most players is not a slump, a slump, but just a year, a typical year. But maybe this slump, even if it continues for longer, will just lead to an even more redemptive storyline, and Djokovic will get some of the the level of love that that the two of them got. Um, a couple of other last things that you sparked one before you go on yes, before should. you go
0: on Carl um uh, that's a really interesting point about Jok- a potential career path for Djokovic um, it's also interesting to think about that in connection with Andre Agassi this is another another one of my my sort of pet observations is that players tend to become more beloved as they get older. Once we, we get used to them, we think of them as veteran fighters, and everybody loves a veteran fighter. And Agassi is a perfect example of that. He was so divisive with fans early in his career, and he wasn't as, as loved as some of his peers. But by the end of his career, it was almost unthinkable to not like Agassi. His last few U.S. Opens, it was, it, it was like the Messiah was fading into the, in, into the evening of his career. And it was totally different from the early career Agassi. And we know that you know, Djokovic is not as popular as Federer and Nadal, not even close, but he seems aware of that too. He seems to want more adulation than he has gotten to this point. And it's a little bit cynical to think that you know, he has that kind of career path in mind, but you would have to think that would appeal to him, the idea of coming back, getting that love that he hasn't gotten, especially if he can manage to do it, after if 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 it happens that Federer or Nadal or both retire before he does it,
1: yeah, and I certainly don't mean to suggest he's setting himself up up for that path. I think he'd be perfectly happy to be sitting on sixteen majors right now and eight in a row, and uh, and and getting whatever love comes with you know have, having put together the most incredible stretch in in tennis history. But I, I think if if the issue is motivation, and he has certainly hinted at that, and also. Uh, it, It just seems apparent because there doesn't seem to be anything physically wrong with him that 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 would be a candidate as a factor that this could give him incredible motivation and hearing it from his new at least and still for now at least coach Andre Agassi might might help like hey this Agassi was in the wilderness for a while and some I mean Djokovic is still number four. Four in the world, I think number three, I think stand past him uh, point is he 's still in the big four he 's still dangerous at every tournament he he 's not playing challengers he he 's not dealing with coming back from like a long absence from the game, just absence from being dominant, so yeah, I certainly would not um, would not count him count him out uh, from from doing it and think that having that model to follow and, and yeah, he is number four should help. And you know, you mentioned Agassiz being divisive and then being beloved and the the and it's obvious to mention because of his current connection with Djokovic, the one who really comes to mind for me is Jimmy Connors. I mean, talk about divisive to downright hated by many people and then makes a run to the semis at the US Open at thirty nine, and by the way, plays with not very good etiquette in that in that often re screened match against remind me what's that match where he he came back from two sets down on the way to that semi you,
0: oh gosh i don't remember who that was. well i'll pull it
1: up while we're talking but um you know this was the famous famously if you were at the u.s open and there was a rain delay which is not as much of an issue now because arthur ash stadium has has a roof they would reshow this match and uh i think it was my former colleague and friend tom parato who wrote a great story a few years ago about how connor's really used a lot of mind tricks and just like nasty behavior during that match to intimidate his opponent and, and, and pull the crowd on his side and, and pull the crowd against his opponent, who was another American and a promising American who basically didn't Christine. have a career after that. Aaron Craigstein, right? Yes, exactly. And, um, and yet, you know, Connors was beloved and people talk about that, that, uh, that run that he had at age 39 with with reverence, and it it sparked a, a great ESPN documentary, 30 for 30. It also brings to mind that the... Your your point, I think, is completely true that players become more beloved as fans become more used to them and, and also feel more the scarcity of them as a as a as a resource, to put it very crudely, like they won't have that many more times to appreciate Nadal at the French Open, Federer at Wimbledon and so on. So it feels all the more special each time. And they've brought along so many fans along the way who feel like this is my last chance to see them. And, and this is so special. So I think then after that fades, then we can reassess and and have a better sense overall of what we think of the person throughout their career. I think Connors and Agassi have kind of fallen back a bit from where their peak popularity was. Although the current players, I don't see any particularly good reason why they would fall back. Like I could see Nadal and Federer being as popular as ever, Djokovic and Murray too, 10 years from now, even if they aren't still dominating in 10 years. And while I, I doubt they would be, I wouldn't predict it because, as I said, the variance is huge. On the one hand, it would have looked really dumb to say Nadal would never win the, you know, another big title if we had said that a few months ago, and it wouldn't have seemed like a dumb prediction then. On the other hand, Rod Laver, I think, never made another major semi after he won his second Grand Slam. So these things just, just change so quickly and then sometimes change back. Sampras was being counted out by everyone, came back and won the U.S. Open, and then People didn't know it at the time either, and wouldn't have predicted it. But he never played another match. He didn't decide that for a while. Um, I have two last quick things on this before we pivot, but I want to give you a second to jump in if you want to say anything to any of that.
0: Yeah, the one thing I wanted to add to that is that it, it, the sort of the sort of dual possible paths you're talking about—that you know, when someone's dominant, they could remain dominant or they could drop off quite a bit. Like that, those obviously aren't the only two options. You can't have players like. Djokovic or Murray who are still in the running every week.
1: Sure, those uh, are more like the um, ends of the range, yeah.
0: Right, but the, those those ends are are pretty substantial and I think the that extreme that someone's going to just stop winning like maybe Djokovic has done, um, or someone's going to get injured and stop playing or just decide to stop playing like Sampras did, that's always a possibility. So when when for instance I come out with a with a draw projection before a slam, there's always someone who complains about whoever the big favorite is being lower than they should be. Like, for instance, before the French Open, I think I was saying Nadal had about a 50% chance of winning, which is higher than usual. Usually I have the number one seed around 35 to 40%. And there's always someone who wants to argue with me about that, that I'm doing something wrong because they're so low. And what it's what that 40% number is saying isn't that the Djokovic you saw at the last slam has a 40% chance of winning. That's not it at all. It, it's more like... The Djokovic you saw at the last slam is probably going to show up. If he shows up, maybe that guy has a 60% chance of winning, like you're thinking of. But there's also a chance that he doesn't show up, either because he gets injured or he starts the fade now or he totally doesn't show up and you know, we're never going to see him contend in a slam again. Those are all the possibilities. And I think it, when you're thinking back to bad forecasts that you've made, those few of us who ever do that think about that, we, we sort of write off some of the bad ones, if they're extremely wrong. Like, if, if if you had predicted Nadal would win the French Open last year, you would say, well, he got injured, he withdrew in the third round, my projection didn't really count. And that's not right. I mean, if you want to make good projections, you need to factor in those extreme events, especially when, as is the case with injuries in tennis, they're not super extreme. I mean, it's always a possibility someone's going to be the overwhelming favorite and... Not even get through a second or third round match either because somebody else is hot or they get injured or you know a variety of other things. So the, the, that's just something to keep in mind when you see forecasts that are lower than you expect, which I think is a pretty common fan experience.
1: That's a great point, and I've heard you say at times things like Rafa's being given in his third round match at the French Open against someone ranked 60th in the world a 97% chance by my algorithm, and that feels low. And I think what you're really saying there is it's really a weighted probability. And, and I don't mean necessarily that the algorithm is perfectly calibrated, but that implicitly it's saying if they both show up in their usual form and there's no injury and no total wild card like weather or big delay, that Rafa probably has a 99% chance and that scenario has a 90% chance of happening. But in the 10% of free cases, maybe it's a much closer to a 50-50 match. And that works out to something like 97%. And because 90% of the time, things go mostly as expected, and then 99% of those times Rafa wins, it feels like a low prediction because you're right, we probably just toss out the outliers. Whereas in fact, if you have a good prediction system, you are factoring this in. I I recall when I was at 538, we were deciding how to forecast the women's tournament in college basketball. And based just on team strength, the probability of UConn women losing in the early rounds was so in infinitesimal that we realized we had to recalibrate the forecast because at that scale, the probability of something like their bus being delayed or food poisoning or something extreme (laughs) was much greater than the probability of the two teams showing up in their usual strength and the other team just winning because they like made every basket or something. So at, at these really extreme extreme ends, you, you do have to factor in that w- what really we're talking about happening when the expected outcome doesn't happen is some kind of freak event. I'm not going to talk about the 2016 US election, but it's in my mind right now. Um, the, the, the other two things uh, just on, on this topic, very quickly, one, you talked about, okay, if somebody dominated before, they can do it again, and fans often have better intuition about this. and. I think, like you and maybe not like some other forecasters, I tend to remember forecasts I'm wrong about or that somebody was right about and I hadn't taken seriously. And I can think of twice where Stan Wawrinka was ranked high and playing well and came into Wimbledon. And some people felt really fervently he was going to lose an early match because he was playing a former slam champ who wasn't ranked high. And both times I was like, come on, Stan Wawrinka, He's, he's got this. And once he lost in the first round to Leighton Hewitt, and I think it was Brad Gilbert who was really insistent, Hewitt's got this, he's going to beat Stan, and he did. And then last year, Stan got Del Potro in the second round. And even though Del Potro has had some good grass results, I don't usually think of him as best on grass, but I did agree that he was better than his ranking, and sure enough, he knocked out Stan. So th- there are people who just will have that sense, and then maybe they're often wrong, and I don't remember when they're wrong, but those two stuck with me of, huh, yeah. Del Potro and Hewitt are much better than their ranking, or at least the peak end of the range of what they can do is much, much better than their ranking in those positions. And then lastly, I don't think this is a name people think of when they talk about this, but Caroline Wozniacki, to me, is interesting in that she had so many weeks at number one. Granted, it was not the WTA at its top strength, but she did dominate that tour for a while, or at least stayed steadily as the most consistent best player for a while. And I don't know if she'll ever get back to number one or even the top five, but I've thought about about how good she was for so long during her comeback recently that, hey, yeah, she was number one. She's still young. She could actually win some majors and get back to number one just because she's already shown us she can do that. So, well, not so much win majors, but she made finals. So uh, while I think of it more in terms of the all-time greats, I think it's true also of players who are a notch below that but have still shown they can be the best in the game.
0: Yeah, especially when you have an open field like the, the women's right now, that when you look at the few players who have been there before, you have to give them a little bit of an edge, um, just because we have seen them play at the highest level, and maybe lose to players who aren't factors anymore. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the women's draw, which we will pretty soon, but a couple more topics on the men's side. Um, this is not our outline, but Carl, I wanted to ask you what you thought of Andy Murray this week, since he was so bad in the run-up on clay. You know, I meant to do a, a mini study on this and see whether anyone who had been so ineffective in the the clay warm-up tournaments, including these the clay masters, had gone on to reach a semifinal or final at the French Open. I'm assuming it's happened a few times in the past, but it did come as a surprise that Murray was able to fight through some. Kind of ugly, difficult matches, but make it to the semifinal and come pretty close to getting past Vavrinka and making it to the final as well. So do you think this is a sign that Murray is, is back in contention, that he's playing reasonably good tennis again? Uh, before I get to that,
1: didn't Vavrinka have at least as bad a season until he won Geneva against a pretty weak field?
0: Yeah, it was similar. I think the Geneva title is the only thing that separates them. But you're right; it would be it would be a mistake to read too much into that because it's not a super strong term. Yeah,
1: I mean, I bring that up because I think you said, "Did anyone have as bad a, a master season?" And yeah, Vavrinka's was terrible, which is is becoming almost a joke. Like he he has been asked about it and, and laughed himself. Like, why do you have three major titles and one master's title? And he's like, "I don't know," but who cares? Like three major titles. That's what <laughs> everyone cares about. Murray has, I don't know, a dozen Masters titles, but hell, Vavrinka had a chance to pass Murray on the all-time major titles list. And if he wins Wimbledon, we'll have a career slam while Murray has only two of the four. So yeah, it's um, if there's anyone who has defied that Masters run-up, it, it would be Vavrinka for me. But uh, yeah, Murray really turned things around. I mean, he started... Pretty ugly at the French, but this was something I think both of us said leading up to it, which is while people always talk about the slams as the ultimate test in tennis for the top players, especially uh, who who will get a guarantee of in the first two rounds not getting a top thirty two seed they they really have a chance to play into form and you know he dropped a set to Andre kuznetsov he dropped a set to Martin Klison and almost had to play a fifth set and and I think was the big inspiration for your post about time on court and the toll that it takes. And it certainly might have by the, by the semi, because by that fifth set, I mean, Stan just blew Murray off the court in the fifth set after Murray forced that, that fifth set. Uh, or I'm sorry, after Murray won his third set and, and forced Stan to go five if he was going to win the match. So... It it could be that, you know, if Murray had pulled that out and we had maybe this most extreme example of Rafa with almost no time on court and Murray with, with just a ton, that we would have really seen the effect of time on court or we would have just seen that Rafa breezed through, time, breezed through his matches and had no time on court because he was playing much better tennis on clay than, than Murray. But I, I saw... in the later round, some incredible flashes from Murray. I mean, some real reminders of, oh, yeah, there's a reason this guy is number one and could stay there for a bit. I mean, he, against Del Potro, just pulled away. That was really impressive. Del Potro was not 100%, but still a third set bagel is not nothing. And then against Nishikori, Murray started terribly. Nishikori was looking dangerous. Nishikori's been a threat on clay before. And then Murray won the next three sets, two of them at 6-1, and was looking really dominant against a very tough player. And then against Vavrinka, who played great throughout that match, just to get to a fifth set was, was an incredible effort from Murray. I, I've never seen a match before where a guy without some crazy conditions like terrible sun or wind seemed like he was at a disadvantage when he was smashing. I, I've said before that I think Murray's lob is one of the best in tennis, and he hit some incredible lobs against Vavrinka. But he also hit through some shots after Vavrinka smashed them and, uh, and, and then went on to win the point and said later that he actually practices doing that, not just re-lobbing when he can retrieve a smash, but, but trying to go in the offensive and hit a ground stroke. And that was obviously the small minority of points, but it just goes to show that when Murray is moving well on clay, which he wasn't in the run-up to the French, he's as good a defender on clay as anyone. And it set him up pretty well in the past that when he's done well at the French, he goes into the grass season on a totally different surface doing well. So it definitely gave me a lot more uh, faith in Murray than I had going into the French Open. Again, I don't want to course correct too much, but the body of evidence is he's a threat on grass and he's still one of the top players in the world. And he reaffirmed that at the French.
0: Yeah, it is an interesting situation we're in right now with not just the Big Four and Bob Rinka, but really with the whole field, that it feels like in the last few years we've shifted from a view of men's tennis where a few years ago we were looking at these four, maybe five players who were really outstanding and we were wondering who would win these, these battles of the Gladiators. And now, maybe I've, again, course-corrected too much – But it it feels like everyone has their weaknesses, everyone has their question marks, especially with injury and some long layoffs, like Federer skipping the entire clay season. And it it feels like instead of of looking at everyone at their best and speculating how those clashes would play out, we're seeing reasons why everyone will lose. So we can point to a lot of Andy Murray's season and say... I mean, he's he might have done okay fighting his way through the French Open, but he's still pretty shaky. Of course, Djokovic's motivation is questionable. Rafa, we don't know how he'll play on a faster court. Roger's taken the last two months off. It's really easy to look at the field right now and point to reasons why every single guy will lose, which ends up with some rather extreme conclusions that I, start, I find myself thinking frequently that every draw is weak these days, which doesn't quite feel right. Of course it isn't right. I mean we're we're not in this unprecedentedly weak era of tennis, I don't think. But it does feel like that more than it felt a few years ago, that l- looking at the draws even at the French Open these past couple weeks, like Andy Murray got to the semifinals, but Nisha Corey's injured, he's fragile, Del Poacher's not really a clay specialist. There's there is there really isn't anybody on that list who Murray should have been challenged that much by. And you can say the same thing with with, with most of Nadal's path or anyone in the tournament. And it, it's, it'll be interesting to find a balance there once some of these players' levels even out a little better. And we get a better sense of whether Rafa can translate this kind of success to faster courts, whether Roger can keep playing as well as he did earlier in the season, whether Novak and Andy Murray can come back. Tons of questions, as we've been saying really for the 10 weeks that we've been doing this podcast. There's a whole lot of uncertainty in men's tennis right now, Uh, and a lot of it remains to be resolved. Yeah, and I think what, what makes it so
1: curious is that this is exactly the time when either the slightly younger players or the much younger players should be capitalizing, but it really still feels like a shuffle among those top five, and they are the top five. And Team was the only one, even in a kind of weird French Open, who... Managed to derail any of them. The top four seeds would have made it through if Djokovic had held form against Team as and beaten them as he had done in all their previous meetings. And then Team didn't win a set against Nadal, so it's less predictable that they're all going to be playing well. But it still feels pretty predictable that they're going to win the tournaments.
0: Yep. So let's move on to the women's draw. There's a lot to talk about there as well, and. In, in stark contrast to all this talk about Nadal and the veterans dominating, we have a first-time winner who's only a few days beyond being a teenager in the Latvian Yelena Ostapenko, who came through not the toughest draw, but beat a lot of good players. She beat Sam Stozer, She beat Simona Halep in the final. She beat Samia Byshynski in the semifinal, who's a very good clay court player. Um... A lot of people weren't that familiar with Ostapenko before this week. She has a a huge game. Uh, We learned in one of the more entertaining tidbits of the week that her average forehand is faster than Andy Murray's average forehand. Um, It's because of all of Murray's
1: slices. I'm just kidding.
0: Yeah, it it could be. Um, Ostapenko does not hit a lot of forehand slices, that's for sure. So it was a huge week for Elena Ostapenko. Uh, kind of a disappointment. Well, definitely a disappointment for Simona Halep, who fought through a couple tough matches as the favorite in the quarterfinal and semifinals. Um, came back against down match point against Fidelina in the quarterfinals, which I thought would really decide the tournament. Turns out I was wrong. Of course, Halep um, couldn't finish it off after winning the first set in the final. So. Carl, you posed this question. I'm gonna direct it right back at you. Looking oh, at Ostapenko, no. <laughs> yeah, we we saw her come in unseated. She had never won a tour level uh, title before. She did reach the final in Charleston a few months ago. Um, it was a relatively weak field coming in. We knew that with Serena out, Sharapova out, Petra Kvitova just coming back, Victoria Azarenka still out. So is this just a fluke in a weak field, or is Ostapenko a future number one? What do you think?
1: I think from purely cold analytics, it's more likely that she's not a future number one because there are only so many number ones in a sport, and there are a number of players slightly older and slightly younger than her that are... Uh, that that have had a more sustained period of success. I mean, she moved up a lot in the rankings, but for a Slam Champ to not even be in the top 10 tells you just how little else she'd done in the previous 52 weeks before this run. So I, I, will, I would love to see her do this again and just go for every shot where she can conceivably go for an aggressive shot and somewhere it doesn't seem possible that she could. But I'm still... Uh, concerned that it it won't happen often, that she she does it seven straight matches. And she had some tough ones along the way. And yeah, a couple of things going differently in that second or third set. And we'd be talking about Simona Halep, number one and first time Grand Slam champ. And it it could, right now, the most likely positive career path for Ostapenko I can see, not the most positive, but the most likely positive, is Petra Kvitova, someone who's won two Wimbledons but has never Come all that close to being number one because twice she managed to sustain her level of aggressive, effective tennis all the way through Wimbledon, a court that rewards it, and otherwise has not threatened too often at at big tournaments. And I could see Astapenko maybe doing better because she just did it on clay, which is much harder and much more impressive. But on the other hand, we were missing some big names here.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to run some numbers on Ostapenko and see just how extreme her aggression comes out as, because he, I think your a comparison is a useful one. And in, in the stat that one of the match charting project contributors uh, designed called Aggression Index, which is exactly what it sounds, higher numbers mean more aggressive play as measured by winners and unforced errors per shot. Um, Kvitova is off the charts. I mean, Any time I run that number, Kvitova is number one, um, often by a pretty wide margin. And then you have people like Madison Keys and some of the other people we think of as, as ball bashers. And you no, know, I don't. I don't rem- remember how far up that scale Ostapenko was, but I don't think she's quite that extreme, which might bode well. One thing I I actually just re- just watched the the women's final and charted it before we started recording this, and what struck me is that. There's a lot of parallels to Sharapova, especially to a, a not entirely polished or finished Sharapova. And part of what primed me for that was I was I was running some numbers for my my French Open re- recap, which will be on the Economist Game Theory blog either today or tomorrow, I think. Um, and one thing I, I focused on, I can't give the whole thing away, but. Yes, Ostapenko is young. She started the, the tournament in 19. It's pretty rare to have, have teenage slam winners. But I think it's easy to understate how young she is because the sport has gotten so much older. And I wrote about that some in a post on the on the Tennis Abstract blog a few days ago. In it, I was comparing her age relative to the draw as a whole compared to other semifinalists in the past. Since when I wrote it, she had only won the quarterfinals. Um, but what it showed was... You, in the last 15 years, I think, the average age of women's draws has gone up by two years. If you go back 30 years, the average age has gone up four years. So think about the differences here. If you had a 19-year-old first-time slam winner in 1988, let's say, then it's a promising thing for a young career. But 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, they should be on the way up at that this point. But right now, the average age of the players in the French Open... This year was over 25 and a half, and it has been there for the last year or so. So what that means in more general terms is there aren't that many people breaking through at 19, 20, 21. Um, People are peaking a lot later than they used to, and they're continuing to play a lot later than they used to. And of course, with players like Serena and Venus Williams, they're continuing to play successfully much later than they used to. So what I tried to do to wrap all those things into one number was just look at players' ages relative to the average age of the field. And Ostapenko is a little more than five and a half years younger than the average age of the field. And when I went back and did that for every slam that I have enough age data for, which I think goes back to 1984, there are only two women who have ever won a slam with a bigger age differential than that and one of them was Martina Hingis and the other one was Maria Sharapova. That's it. Good company. Um, very good company. And it's even better when you look further down the list. Um after Ostapenko with smaller age differentials, you have Monica Seles with her first slam and someone you might have heard of named Serena Williams. So your top 5 are Hingis, Seles, Williams, Sharapova and Yelena Ostapenko. Now an, an obvious counterpoint to that is all I'm doing is subtracting two numbers. I mean, a 15-year-old sensation feels developmentally very different. Hey, first from you're averaging late...
1: 128 numbers. Don't sell yourself short.
0: <laughs> That's true. Um, but developmentally, it feels very different to have a 15-year-old champion than a 19-year-old champion. Just in terms of physical development, Ostapenko should be further along than someone like Kengis was when she won those slams at age 16. But at the same time, like everything else has changed too. So thinking about it in terms of an aging curve, Ostapenko could get better for the next five or six years, which is a, a really scary thought considering how good she looked at times during this slam. And she could still be in the running in... Ten years. I mean, Sharapova is still someone we consider as a threat, even if she's, she's injured right now. Um, and this is this is 12, 13 years after her first slam. So, yes, if, if you were to do a weighted average of all the possible career paths for Ostapenko, I totally agree, Carl. You're, you're not going to end up with a number one. And that's going to be true for almost anyone, unless CeCe Bellis goes and wins the Grand Slam over the next 12 months. But at the same time well then time, she would be number 1 but yes <laughs> she would be not, that's true she would be number 1 uh, and you could project all sorts of more slams for her but what's really refreshing to me about this is for the first time in men's or women's tennis for a while you have someone who's breaking through early enough that they could end up as an all-time great and it I mean, whenever i find myself uttering or typing words like that i have to take a step back because it sounds so extreme and Again, I'm not predicting that as like the, the median forecast for Yelena Ostapenko's career, but for most players at age 20, maybe even including someone like Alexander Zverev, you, you can't even really make a top 10 percentile projection of all-time great. But right now, given what we know about Ostapenko, I think you can.
1: So I, th- I think that one downside to the subtracting two numbers as you described it is we are just taking into account this result from her. And I don't know exactly what Hingis, let's say, and Sharapova and others had done, how much of body of work they'd assembled before they broke through, plus the others who had a, a smaller age differential. But Astapenko hadn't, I think, reached or gone past, I think, gone past the third round at a major before she hadn't won a tour level title. So, and, and, and Part, part of that is, yeah, there's a big age differential, so she didn't have that much opportunity. But because her absolute age was higher, she did have some opportunities. She played a lot of tournaments. So so I wonder if this breakthrough counts as much, and that's not even getting into Serena Williams, Sharapova, and Azarenka all not being there. And it's also not getting into, even with all three of them being there, this not being quite the strength of the overall WTA of let's say when Hingis broke through, especially, and, and somewhat Sharapova, I think both of them, based on looking at things like ELO and just career slam titles of players still within their peak age range, it was just a stronger field. I mean, we're talking here about a field at which I think by the quarterfinals we didn't have any major champions left in the draw. So so those are all caveats for me, but I, I certainly am excited and want to see her be near the top of her Of her range and and you know i i somewhat discounted her as saying like if she has such an aggressive game then it's like petra kavitova and that means she's often going to hit her way out of the draw early because she's missing more than she's making but one of the things that players can change the most once they've reached their 20s is their tactics and i don't think she should ever become a defensive specialist but if she becomes a little more judicious about when she goes for it and maybe a little better at at some of the other subtleties of the game and and a little more fit, then, yeah, she could be even better than she was in blowing through the draw here. I shouldn't say blowing through the draw because there's a lot of close matches, but hitting through the draw certainly in terms of her her winner rate. So, um, So on the one hand, I think we might be overstating what she did as a breakthrough here. On the other hand, looking at her current game is probably understating her potential.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's always a really difficult decision to make um, in, in terms of ha- how to rate this current tournament. Because as, as you point out, of course, we have no Serena, no Sharapova. Um, on the other hand, like Simona Halep arguably was the best clay court player on on tour right now. And of course she beat Halep. Um, Wozniacki you don't think of as a good clay court player, but has had a very good season. She beat Sam Stozer in the fourth round. Looking back at Sharapova's breakthrough slam and Hingis's early slams. Sharapova did have to beat Serena and Lindsay Davenport when she won Wimbledon in two thousand four. I think I might have said a few minutes ago it was the U.S. Open, but that was that was later. Um, so Sharapova played a tougher draw. But looking at Hingis's Hingis's year back in ninety seven, I think when she won three slams and made it to the final, of the other one, the match she lost was to Eva Maoli, who won her only slam. Um, it, she didn't play. She didn't play the big names you'd think you'd have to beat to almost win a calendar year Grand Slam. But of course, she did go on to a a, a great career, um, which could have been better with some different decision-making on her part. But it, it's just really tough to to look at to look at a slam draw at the moment it happened and know how consequential it really was. And we could look at this differently if, you know, Crazy Thought, Louisa Chirico becomes a, a perennial top 10 player. That was one of Ostapenko's early-round opponents. Or if Halep goes on to
1: win five French Opens or something. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And it could turn out that Sharapova never comes back strong or Serena never comes back strong, which means that really winning the French Open this year isn't that much different from winning the French Open next year or any one of the next few seasons. So you're right to to make that point of caution. Um, I would want to claw that back a little bit. Let's caution on
1: the caution, absolutely.
0: Caution on the caution. That's what we should have called this podcast. That's what I was about to say. I can't believe it took us 11 episodes to finally come up with the, the perfect name. Because when when you hear caution on the caution, you think gripping tennis listening, surely. Uh, so, other thoughts on the women's draw. Let me pose another question, Carl, that you posed to us or to me. Um, Halep has now lost two French Open finals, one to Sharapova and the second one to Ostapenko. They're her only slam finals so far. Uh, this certainly felt like her best chance, uh, maybe even the best chance she'll ever get. Uh, do you think Halep will ultimately come through and win a slam?
1: I think it's probably a little over 50%. I mean, she's she has not made it look at all like a fluke in terms of doing well at a lot of other big tournaments, although more so on clay. So I think her best chance is going to continue to be the French Open. But I think about... U.S. Open last year in a really gripping and tight quarterfinal she played against Serena Williams, which some people, though not Serena Williams, uh, pointed to when Williams lost her next match against Pliskova. So I, I certainly could would be more surprised if she never won one than if she won one or, or more. And she'll always be a contender when she's healthy at the French Open. She wasn't even healthy entering this draw and got two up a set and three love in the final. So it... it mostly seems like a positive indicator for future slam success rather than a negative one, even though in terms of her total career title haul, it actually obviously hurt her that she didn't close out that final. It, it does concern me. I mean, we just talked about the aging of the draw. So the fact that Halep turns 26 in September should be less of a concern than it used to be, but that's still already older than average. So that, that's a concern. I mean, it's uh she did have those two chances. She's had other chances late in slams where she had disappointing results. I don't think the loss to Sharapova was really disappointing because at that point, Sharapova would have been favored pretty heavily on clay, but you don't always get more chances. I mean, Wozniacki had very early in her career a slam final against Kim Kleisters and didn't come close to winning, but it felt like, hey, she's young, she's approaching number one, then she reached number one, surely she'll have a lot more chances, and she really hasn't. So it's... It's a, it's a little concerning that her by far her best chance is on clay, and there's only one major on clay each year. He's younger, but some of what we've talked about has made me think more about Dominique Thiem and how, on the one hand, he feels very young because relative to the Big Five all being in their 30s, he is. On the other hand, he still hasn't reached the slam final. He still seems much more dangerous on clay, which means he only has one chance, and it's also the time when Nadal is so dangerous And some people said things like, oh, once Nadal finally moves on or or declines, team is going to win eight or nine French Opens. And I don't know, he hasn't even made a final yet. I'm not sure he'll win one. So it's tough with the players who are, on the one hand, able to play another decade if their older peers' examples are ones that can be followed. On the other hand, they haven't won one yet and have missed out in some years that they could have. So... I don't. I don't know how that balances out. We just said how hard it is to project the all-time grades. It's also hard to project the players, kind of at that next tier, whether they will ever break through or whether they've already peaked.
0: Yeah, it, it, it really the hard thing to predict is is just a single forecast for a player's career trajectory, and it, it feels more like we should have we should have three forecasts. Like we should have the one if she keeps playing the way she's playing now. And the forecast at that point might be you know she plays five or six more years, she wins two or three slams, everybody's happy the The median forecast might be the like the Wozniaki forecast to to use your example that she'll stay on tour, but she'll fall down in the ranks she, she maybe won't have another deep run and then there's always that third forecast like we were talking about with with a possibility for Nadal earlier on in his career the possibility that she'll get hurt or she'll lose her motivation or something and really just fall away at age 26, 27, 28, which is always a possibility. Not as much as it was maybe 20 years ago, but it's always there. And though having those three forecasts, if we somehow had the wherewithal to make them and then somehow weight them properly, then that would be more instructive than saying, you know, the weighted average of Simona Halep's career forecast is, you know, 1.3 slams. I mean, there, there's a lot of different, very different scenarios that would go into saying that sort of thing for a player, really any player, but especially one who's on the cusp of greatness who, but who might never achieve it. I mean, My favorite WTA player before some more came along was Elena Dementia and she's in the same position. She got to two slam finals, lost them both, was a contender for a long time, hung around in the top 10, even the top five for years but never got the opportunity and unfortunately it's it's very plausible that the same thing will happen to Simone Halep i hope it doesn't but the, the chance is always there. Yeah. I mean, you, what you kind of
1: want to know on a podcast called caution on the caution is what is the 95% confidence interval? Like what, what is Halle going to do, uh, in the, where she's, uh, around, you know, the, the, the fifth percentile of her career outcomes and the 95th percentile. Uh, the other thing that occurred to me, you, you mentioned again, something we've speculated about loss of motivation. And I was thinking, you know, we talk about that more in tennis. It feels like than other sports. Why is that? And one of the things that I thought of is that in other sports, you have a team that you're um, that that is relying on you, and you have relationships with that team, and and that can be with with your fellow players, with coaches, with with management. Whereas in singles tennis, you you really just have obligations to yourself. And then I thought about how much modern players think think and talk about their teams, and by that they mean their entourage which is coach and physio and and you know i'm sure many analytics heads yeah right but it, it can be a whole staff basically for the top players and i wonder to what extent that can help explain players playing on and playing better partly that the team supports them and it makes it easier to uh to do all the right things with scheduling and fitness and diet and and nightlife life or lack thereof to to stay healthy and stay competitive and to what extent it is that players feel some obligation to their team that even though Djokovic just fired most of his team, uh, he, still, he still got a relationship with them. And, uh, you know, Nadal still has a relationship with Tony Nadal, uh, even after Tony Nadal leaves. And Tony Nadal's success with the Nadal Academy will be tied to Nadal's career success and so on. That Maybe the, the growing of the team and the relationships in the team help explain players sticking around and, and feeling more motivated to, to win for that coach they love and, and want to see successful.
0: And that could also explain something of the persistence of of the best players at the top of the game. Because if if you look at the size of players' entourages, you have the top few players on both tours, you have the, the coach and the hitting partner and the physio and maybe a couple more people, maybe a parent traveling with them full time. So they might have five or six people that does psychologically constitute what you'd think of as a team, but you don't have to get very far down the ranks before you get to players who are maybe not traveling alone, but traveling with one parent slash coach or a hitting partner slash coach or something like that, who maybe they aren't paying nearly as much, certainly not an elite super coach type of person. So if there is a benefit to that in terms of keeping your motivation up, which seems very plausible to me, then that would be another reason why someone who is in the top 10 is more likely to stay there. It's easier for them to, to keep the focus at all times rather than just you know, punch a tournament because their head isn't in it and you know, they, they might have some fights with their dad if they don't play well, but that's really the only negative psychological aspect to just giving up on an entire tournament. So And I forgot to be... mention
1: also just, like, sponsor obligations and and desire to keep those sponsorships and, and to keep them past retirement, but to, to also, you know, the, the more valuable ones while you're still playing. Like, Djokovic might want a break right now, but his sponsors don't want him to take one.
0: Yeah, especially since he just signed a new deal with Lacoste. They certainly don't want him to take a break right now. Uh, so we are... Tallying up the minutes awfully fast, and we have a lot more I want <laughs> to talk about. That's an incredible uh, sentence. <laughs> um, well, We'll go fast. Right? We'll, we'll try to go fast. We probably won't. But the, let's start with the men's doubles. It is shocking to everyone, probably including the players involved, the men's doubles final at a Grand Slam played on a clay court involved two Americans, neither of whom were named Brian. Uh, one was close. Ryan Harrison playing <laughs> playing with his good buddy Michael Venus, um, who also won a title with him in Estoril, I think, last month. And Donald Young playing with partner Santiago Gonzalez of Mexico. Harrison and Venus ended up winning, so we have we have yeah. A, this was two American.
1: North Ameri- three North Americans and, and, and a New Zealander on clay in the final.
0: Yeah, just just what everybody predicted, and it, it was one of the for all the talk about the women's draw being up in the air, unpredictable, uh, the men's doubles draw was even crazier. I mean, virtually no match went according to script. Um, even the guys I highlighted highlighted early on as really strong on clay, like um, Cabal and Farah, who were the 16 seeds, but ranked really high in my clay ELO ratings, and also, Zabaios and Julio Peralta, who are as close as you can come to clay specialists in doubles. Um, they both did okay, but neither of them made it, made it in the final. They had to play each other, I think, in the quarterfinals. But you end up with these teams that, yeah, are, are not clay-focused at all. Um, Carl, we talked about this in one of our first episodes, that Ryan Harrison was the the only American who showed up from Monte Carlo. Most of the other Americans stayed home and played Houston on the sort of fake North American clay and then only showed up later, uh, in usually in Madrid or even in Rome. So do you think that that played a part? I mean, do you think that if, if more Americans showed up and got used to the dirt, then we could see more slam finals like this with some North Americans on clay?
1: Yeah, I and mean, especially in doubles. I mean, I think there's been so much justified talk about the decline of American men in singles, but not even just the Bryans. A lot of American men have done well in doubles, and Quarry and Johnson and Isner have all had good results. We talked about Brian Baker on a recent episode, Nick Monroe, maybe because it's a team sport country or because doubles plays to some of the American strengths of big serve and big forehand and movement being less exposed. But for whatever reason, it, it seems like that's an area, it's clearly not the area American men's tennis wants to be contending and, domin- contending and dominating, but it, it is the, the one where it's doing best right now. And I also hope that more players in the kind of Ryan Harrison, Donald young rankings and singles, Venus and Gonzalez being more double specialists that more of them enter these, these slam doubles draws. Cause this isn't the first time we've seen this kind of a breakthrough and there's decent money at stake. I mean, I I'd say in dollars per fan watching, it was an incredible return. My, my former colleague and friend, Jason gay was at the match and emailing me about how empty it was. And he asked me if I thought this was a crime. And I said, of course I do. Uh, I I love watching the men's doubles finals, but with those four names, it was going to be a tough sell in Paris, but I think they split something like 540,000 euros for winning, which is not nothing for guys ranked in the forties and fifties in singles. So, I I hope it means more players showing up early on clay, and I hope it means more players who realistically can only expect to win on average one or two matches in the singles draw, entering the doubles draw, sticking around, and making the most of their trip.
0: Yeah, and and, a topic that we've talked about a few times, but I haven't pursued at all, is that is somehow predicting from singles results who's going to develop into a double specialist. Because we, There are some players, of course, like the Bryans, who are very focused on doubles early on, but there are other players who, of course, everybody plays doubles when they're young, um, even when they're coming up on tour. That's when a lot of the top players play the most doubles. But very few players, when they're 22, 23, think of themselves as future double specialists because, as you point out, like there, there's not nearly as much money there, even if there is quite a bit of money at the at the tail end of slams um but my point is we don't know who the doubles specialists of the future are going to be and the players themselves in many cases don't know either and the only way to find out of course is to play a lot of doubles and it may be that you know ryan harrison in 10 years is going to have one heck of a doubles resume um donald young seems a little bit more far-fetched to me but sure it could happen i mean he he loves tennis. He seems like the kind of guy who, even if his singles career wasn't working out, would want to keep grinding away and playing doubles events. And oh, I, I, I hope I hope he does. I hope he does. Not because he fails at singles, but because he wants to keep playing and, and doubles is an opportunity for him. And maybe we have seen, and certainly in, in the case of Ryan Harrison, someone that we didn't think of as a doubles guy at all, coming into his own that way. And as the the Frenchman Pierre Ever. Uh, Pierre Herbert, yeah, um, as as he's shown us, like you can still keep fighting in your singles career, and he's still trying to climb the rankings, I think sometimes he prioritizes singles over doubles, even though he has been at the very top of the rankings in doubles with Nicolas Mahou. Um but you can have an outstanding career as a doubles player, and still not abandon your dream as a singles player, and... Maybe that's a path for someone like Ryan Harrison. Yeah, and in fact,
1: if you can consistently make money on the double store, that brings you to tournaments where you, your singles ranking might not get you in, and then you, you try to qualify. And, and a lot of guys who aren't even really trying to get a singles career going will just enter qualifying for the hell of it. So the fact that the the two events are closely tied is is a good thing. And, and Donnie Young plays a lot of doubles. Like, you, you seem more skeptical of his chances, but it's something he's been pretty committed to for a while. I think he usually enters a doubles draw when he is in the singles draw. So who knows? I mean, he's really fast, and maybe that's less valuable in doubles, but he has some good touch at net. He likes coming to net. Uh, the lefty serve isn't as big for him as other players as i think you've written but it it maybe is less exposed with a partner at net so yeah i could see him having a good doubles career i think in a lot of cases what makes it so hard to predict is just not knowing each individual player's calibration in terms of how they weigh singles versus doubles how interested are they in shifting or retiring into doubles as we've called it before
0: Yeah, and as you were pointing out when we started talking about the the influence of having a a team, I actually thought you were segueing into doubles and not talking about coaches and physios and that sort of thing, because it, it does seem to me that there are some players who... Whose rap as a singles player is that they're not really mentally strong. They lose matches because of that, because of mental lapses or that sort of thing. And then having that get ironed out, playing doubles, either because they don't have to be as focused every single moment, or because they have a partner on court constantly refocusing refoc- them. And it seems like Donald Young might be the kind of guy who would benefit from that. I mean, he he has his bad patches on on the singles court, and maybe a partner stabilizes him. I mean, the fact that he has played more doubles makes me more skeptical uh, that reaching a slam final is going to trigger some new growth. Uh, Someone like Harrison who hasn't played as much doubles, it seems like we don't have as much data to to show otherwise. So, hey, maybe he he can be great. But in both cases, it could be that that having the partner on court refocusing them is is going to help. So I certainly hope so. Um, Women's doubles... We had the, the great, entertaining team of Bethany Maddox-Sands and my fave Lucy Safarova uh, win the title, beating DeLacqua and Ashley Barty. Um, I was surprised to see DeLacqua and Barty get that far. They don't seem like a team that would be that great on clay, but they are really, really good at doubles. Um, Carl, you had some thoughts about other players in the draw. We, we didn't see Martina Hingis or Sanya Mirsa get even close to the final, I don't think. Um do you think that? Do you think that as a, as a team they'd still be playing well together? Do you think they would have a shot against teams like Matic and Safarova and Delaqua Barty?
1: Absolutely. And you were talking about potentially some some feeling of of team and obligation to team from doubles and thinking that's where I was going to transition to. And mostly when I think about doubles, I think about just how volatile pairings are and that a bad stretch can just end a pairing that was incredibly successful. This has been on my mind also because I went yesterday to the men's final of the uh, beach volleyball Mm -hmm. tournament in New York City, which turns out is one of the biggest pro beach volleyball tournaments of the year. And by the way, the winner split, I think, $18,000. So hey, men's doubles in tennis is a pretty friggin' good deal relative to that. Um, And I was reading the backstories and almost everyone had changed partners, especially since Rio and disappointing results in Rio. So, you know, this is true in lots of sports. I would have trouble, I think, being in a relationship with a professional doubles player in sports because they're so quick to end relationships when something goes wrong for for a short period. I, I don't know the full backstory with Hingis and Mirza, but they were incredibly successful and dominant. And had a rough patch, but not a long one and not even that rough relative to most player standards split and have had almost nowhere near the level of success they had together. And that's really sad. They were such a dynamic and dominating duo. I, I, I wish they had stayed together. It's not that they've been bad since then, and maybe they, they like their current partnerships more, work better for them, but it certainly hasn't paid off in, in results. Uh, it was nice to see Delacqua and Barty get that far. Barty is an interesting example, by the way, of the singles-doubles balance. She left tennis entirely for a while, but she's still just 21. And while she's had some good singles results, she's been a much more successful and dominant doubles player. So it'll be interesting to see how she continues to balance those two.
0: Yeah, she could end up with an a just astonishing doubles career if she does stick around in tennis because she has done so much already and she is so young. I mean, as we've seen with someone like Hingis, you can have a successful women's doubles career in, into your late 30s. So as long as, as Barty stays healthy and wants to compete... like she seems like a threat for the, the last rounds of every Grand Slam she enters for a decade and beyond. And I
1: think Navratilova won her last Slam Mixed Doubles title at around age 50. So yeah, these these things can last for a while. Not everyone is Martina Navratilova, though.
0: Yeah, Martina Navratilova is, is sort of the 99.9th percentile of every forecast, so it is. yes. Not a very reliable one. Now, one thing we don't usually talk about uh, with the slams is the wheelchair division, but Carl, I know you spent some time following that. What do you have to tell us about about that at the French?
1: Yeah, I I wrote about it a fair amount in in the last few years, and I wrote about Esther Vergeer and maybe the most dominant athlete in any sport ever, at least that I know of. And she retired a few years ago and i've written about other wheelchair players and it's it's i think one of the highlights of the late rounds of majors especially before the final if you're or if you don't have tickets to the to the big pro singles final it's it's always a thrill and you can get really close to the court and it's incredible tennis but what what i find interesting analytically is just how little the names change and some of it is that players do last a long time and that for probably could have played another decade if she'd been motivated to and continue to dominate But they're small draws, and it seems to be the same players competing in them every time I look. So it's not easy not being on site to to see much of it, but it does seem like there isn't a lot of turnover in that sport, and I find that interesting. I wonder if it's just a very limited pool of people who have access to the equipment and the courts and the training and the coaching and have the time to devote to it. And and certainly the prize money is nowhere near uh, for... You know the—I don't know what you call it—the non-wheelchair division. But it is interesting to me that we haven't seen that many young players really break through, and that we continue to see the same old names, other than Vergeer in both the men's and women's side.
0: Yeah, it, it is interesting to, to see that. I agree. Um, now, since we don't have a lot of time left for this episode, we wanted to touch on the upcoming grass season, kind of a big deal, even with the French Open so recently in our in, in our rearview mirror. Uh, I think we'll save most of our grass season preview for next week when more of the top players are, are on court. But one player who's who's already in a tournament right now in Stuttgart, Roger Federer, is there. You've probably heard of him, even though he did miss the the, the clay season. Um, he's still sitting at number five in the rankings. Um, Carl, maybe you, you understand this a little better than I do. I've never totally grasped how the Wimbledon seeding formula works, but I think it will move him up to number four. Do you, is that right? Do you think we'll see him in the top four seeds at Wimbledon? I
1: think so. There, it, it's obviously premature because it'll depend how he does in this grass season and also how the guys he could pass, Djokovic and Vavrinka, do. Djokovic usually plays one or no warm-up events that are f- official, and Vavrinka usually hasn't done much at the warm-up event. So so that will factor in. Uh, it certainly helps that he made the final at, in – I think they go back two years, so that includes the last two Wimbledons plus this year's grass season and last year's grass warm-up season. So he made the final at 2015 Wimbledon. He made the semis at 2016 Wimbledon. He won Holland in 2015 – which I guess won't count, because that'll be... Yeah, it, it's confusing as hell. He basically has a chance at the number four seed. I assume that he and the top four all wouldn't mind if he got it just to make it more predictable, except for whoever he would pass to overtake. So four out of the five would be happy. Um, it it would be really weird to see, like, a Murray-Federer quarterfinal at Wimbledon. Uh, yeah, but
0: even a, even a Federer-Nadal quarterfinal would... Yes. It just seems unthinkable <laughs> until it's actually in the draw. Yes and
1: i i would love it if someone else did the math because it's annoying to do the formula is out there but it's not simple i've done it before but it could make the grass warm up season way more interesting than usual there's so few points available relative to the clay warm up season or the us open warm up season or the post australian i mean it's just we're talking about one week with 500 level events and one week and two weeks with 250 level events so normally that just doesn't move the needle much but in this case that that'll be the indicator to watch and it would be hilarious to me if he's just on the verge of getting that seed and enters that, that week before. Although, having said it would be hilarious, I realize the seeds are decided before that week, so it couldn't affect the results. But it would be great if like, the Halle final was the decider on whether Federer was a 4-seed or a 5-seed. That would make it way more interesting than usual.
0: Yeah. Um, so two more names to talk about for Wimbledon before we wrap things up for this week. Uh, we talked about Andy Murray and Stan Wawrinka, who met in the semifinal a few days ago. Um, they have very different things at stake here at Wimbledon. Andy Murray, according to the the betting odds right now, is just barely the favorite at Wimbledon uh, ahead by a, a pretty tiny amount ahead of Federer. And then Wawrinka, not nearly as high up in, in the odds, but... He just brought a new coach on board, Paul Anacone, who once worked with Federer, among others, um, and Wawrinka needs only Wimbledon to get the career Grand Slam, which would really, I think, just confuse the heck out of everybody in terms of weighing the, I don't know, the, the overall careers of the Big Five now. I mean, everything we've thought about the Big Four would, it, it would be confused by the, by Sam Wawrinka with a career grand, grand Slam, so kind of rooting for it in that regard. Um what do you think, Carl? Do you think Andy Murray is the the Wimbledon favorite? And what do you think Bob Rinka's chances are of pulling it off? Yeah,
1: I think Murray probably is the favorite, although, again, I might be overweighting his French Open run. But he won it last year. Federer gets some demerits at this point just for being idle for a while. But, you know, if he sweeps Stuttgart and Halle, I'd certainly reconsider um but murray's been so good on the wimbledon grass between winning two titles in the last four and also winning the olympics in 2012 uh he's done well at queens which is another you know home home town because he lives in london or, or in the london area another another hometown tournament on grass and he did well there in, in davis cup so andy murray on london grass is, is really tough I think this is a much a more interesting draw than the French Open, because you had Nadal already playing well and at his favorite tournament, whereas at Wimbledon, the two guys you'd favor the most based on recent Wimbledon form would be Murray and Federer, and yet uh, Murray had a disappointing clay season overall, and Federer didn't play it at all, and... You don't know what to make of Djokovic, but he won Wimbledon in 2011, 2014, 2015. So that's a pretty good record as well. And then Wawrinka has always been worst on grass, but has also had some good runs at Wimbledon. So it would be silly to count him out because he's shown that if he makes that second week in a major, he's dangerous. So I, I would give Stan probably only a 5 to 10% chance, but this feels like a tournament where the favorite has more like somewhere between 20 and 30% chance than somewhere between 40 and 60%. So it feels like Stan is closer to being one of the top contenders. How about you?
0: Yeah, I agree. It, it feels like he's in the mix more than he would have been a few years ago. I mean, having all these question marks around Djokovic seems to be the, the biggest effect because people have been talking about Murray as in the mix for the last several Wimbledons and of course, they've been right sometimes, but Djokovic has been the one immovable, immovable factor, even as as Ndahl's been hurt and absent, and and Federer's had some disappointing results, but it's really hard to, to give Djokovic much of a chance at this point, given what we've seen from him this year. So, of course, based on everything we said about forecasting over the last hour, um, we're going to count Djokovic out, and he's going to come back and win, and the whole narrative of his, of his career will change, but... It is tough to imagine that happening right now, and that does open up an opportunity for Stan, especially since it looks like he'll hang on to that one of those top four seeds and make it that much easier that he'll make it to the semifinals where he, he apparently has some kind of magical powers. Before we wrap up, I wanted to just send a plug out to a really great post on, on a blog called First Ball In. It's uh, fbitennis.tumblr.com. And it's actually James Comey's of, blog. Yeah, yeah, it's James Comey's FBI tennis blog. Um, yeah, they do analytics on the FBI's internal club leagues. Um, they don't actually publish any results, but they they do do some analytics on them. But on the, on FBI tennis, uh, the the guy who who writes that site did a great post on. He called it the curious case of Stanislas Wawrinka. And it was about how, as we've talked about, Vavrinka plays so much better in big matches, how he, he plays better than you'd expect from the number of points he wins. And I don't know if there can be a clear conclusion to this to really explain what it is Vavrinka does that makes him more effective than, according to some stats, he should be. But the post does a really great job of laying out what the discrepancies are and, and, and setting aside some of the possible counter-arguments like for instance, if Vavrinka is great in the clutch, you'd expect him to play well on break points. Well, actually, no. He doesn't play that particularly well on break points. But he, he's doing something. And I hopefully will be able to look that, into that more myself. Um, I think Stephanie Kowalczyk on her blog showed that, according to her clutch rating, Vavrinka was better than average. So there's some, some clutch skill going on there. But there's a lot to figure out about what Vavrink is doing to win these really big matches when he does and then at other times, like the clay master season, not showing up at all. So,
1: Quick theory. We'll I know we need to wrap, but the the thing I'd love to see tested is it feels like, especially on clay, on other surfaces, when Vavrinka gets time on the ball and goes for it, he's deciding the point. And he often is setting up a ball that he will have time on to set up for a big ground stroke. And to what extent is the level of aggression you're you're playing with where the match is in the cliche on your racket to what extent does that determine how little variance there is between who you're playing that the other player has less effect on the outcome i mean obviously there's defense and scrambling but if avrinka really hits a forehand well there's it's he's going to win the point against almost anyone Um, maybe except Nadal on on clay. So I wonder if that can explain something like Kvitova occasionally going on runs where it doesn't seem to matter who she's facing. And then other times she could lose to anyone. Whereas a more defensive style will tend to give you more predictable results. And I think we haven't seen that with big serving, but I wonder if a more aggressive rallying style could explain it.
0: Yeah. That's something we've talked about uh, off the podcast and my sort of pet theory on top of your pet theory is that, it's uh, that you have more variance when playing someone of a contrasting style. Mm-hmm. So if Vavrinka if were to play someone who was equally aggressive, then you know, they're both going to have good and bad patches, but it's generally going to work out the way you'd expect it to. But when is playing someone defensive, which characterizes the rest of the big four, except for Federer, um, he's going to either be able to plow past the defenses with, with an erratic but possibly effective style, or he's going to only be erratic, which is pretty much what we saw against Nadal. He didn't have the big weapons to to blow past Nadal's defenses, where he has managed to do that against Murray um, this past week and Djokovic multiple times in the past. So it's the contrast in styles that that gives rise to the variance, but there's a lot of work to be done before we can establish that. Um, And maybe that's what we should be doing now instead of going into the 80th minute (laughs) of our podcast. Our longest episode so far. Thank you, Carl, as always, for joining us for this bonus episode. Thanks, Jeff. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. If indeed you made it to the end, um, we appreciate your, your stamina and delaying your bathroom break this long. Um, we'll be back next week, and we'll talk more about the grass season in earnest. Um, there's a lot of players who were looking forward to hopefully big things this grass season who we didn't mention at all. This week, and we'll only be a couple weeks away from Wimbledon. So, hope you'll join us next week, uh, and we'll see you then. Okay. Stop.